Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. We're going to Exodus chapter 25. We started a a number of weeks ago and we saw the blood of the covenant. We saw this covenant, the old covenant, being formed right here on Mount Sinai with the elders of Israel all going up the mountain and uh, hearing the terms of the covenant and then the nation and uh, saying we will obey it and the blood being splashed on the altar and on the people. And then we saw these elders go back up the mountain and, and have a meal where they literally are seeing the God of Israel with this p- clear pavement of, like, uh, um, uh, what is it? I'm going to say jasper. No, sapphire. As clear as the sky itself. And they had a meal, and we said that's a covenant meal, celebrating their family. And we saw we're called into a family-like relationship. We are people now, all in a covenant with God and with one another. Now, the first thing after this covenant is formed that God did was to establish the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a tent. It is, in effect, the king's tent. God moved into the middle of the people of Israel and set up his tent. He came to live among them. They are now a people, a spiritual family who is in covenant with him. And the first thing he did was to move, literally, his presence right into the center of his people. We're going to follow this theme of covenant through the, through the Bible a bit. We're going to see its meaning, and then we're going to, we're going to apply it very practically to what it, the impact it makes on our lives today. Because it is not simply an interesting theological point. Frankly, it's the most wonderful truth you ever heard and I ever heard in our lives. And that is that God has come to dwell with us. In fact, he's come to dwell in us. And uh, we even have a destiny uh, more profound than that. And I'll point you to it in a minute. Come Holy Spirit, we ask that the word of God would open up. Make us hungry uh, for the presence of the Lord. Teach us to be desperate for the power of God and the presence of God within us. Come, Lord, and bring that sweet revelation. Open the word and grace me to speak it so we can hear you. In Jesus' name, amen. Rather than slowing down, the demands seem to be increasing. I'm talking about my own life. At times I look ahead at all I have to do and fear rises up telling me there's no way I'll have the strength to do what's being asked of me. But more and more, I also hear the Holy Spirit, just as the panic starts to accelerate, telling me, don't look at all that's ahead. Just take matters one at a time and turn to me for help before you start each one. When I obey this principle, I am repeatedly amazed to find I have the strength I need to take the next step. Sometimes that strength arrives only minutes before I need it. But remarkably, it does arrive. I think I'm learning what Paul meant when he said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And also why the Lord Jesus said, 
Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. How many have discovered the Lord was correct? <laughs> Basically, God wants me to know he's always there because he literally dwells within me. He isn't a distant God, but his help and guidance are always near at hand. I had a dear friend, he was a spirit-filled Methodist evangelist, and I had a, he had a profound influence on my spiritual life. He was around from the moment when I was 12 when I received the Lord and, and inputted our, our lives at, at significant moments, keeping us on track and from going off into the uh, troubled waters. And I'll never forget one thing he said. He said, I believe there comes a moment in each person's life when there is the revelation of Christ in me, the hope of glory. And what he meant by that is we all theologically understand uh, that God's there. We can even theologically understand that somehow Christ has come to live in me, but it's different than what is a personal, real revelation that he's really in there. Christ in me the hope of glory. There's a, I believe it's a work of God. And I think some of us will have had it probably and some of us will not. Some of us will know theologically it's true. For others of us, it's a deep personal reality. I know Christ dwells deep within me. I know it. And I sense it. That dwelling in us is really the point of the message today. That God dwells deep within us. No sooner had God made a covenant with Israel than he ordered Moses to let them construct a sanctuary, a holy place for me, that I may dwell among them. This was a portable tent which could be set up wherever the nation camped so God could dwell in the midst of his people. The construction of this tabernacle was the beginning of a great theme running through the Bible. The Lord wants to dwell in the midst of his people wherever they go. The more we learn about this truth, the more it will change our lives. Now, I want to show you this theme. Let's start at uh, chapter 25, verse 1. Again, this is right after that covenant meal and the formation now of a new spiritual family. Verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. So this is a free will offering. No one is forced to participate. There are no quotas. God is simply saying those who would like to give are invited to give. This is the contribution which you, shall, you are to raise from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet material, fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, porpoise skins, acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and setting stones for the ephod for the breastpiece. Those, those are uh, part of the priest's outfit. Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. According to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of its furniture, 
just so you shall construct it. I am not going to go into all the furniture and all of those things. We're not going into that at all. Simply the understanding of a sanctuary being formed, a tabernacle. Now turn with me to Exodus 40. Here we have a description of this tabernacle being set up. And I want you to notice what happens and how literally um, God intended to come among them. I'll just, uh, well, I guess I'll read. Uh, verse 17. Now it came about in the first month on the second year of the second year, on the first day of the month that the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle and laid its sockets and set up its boards and inserted its bars and erected its pillars. If you've been doing the daily Bible study, you know what all of those are, more than you want to know. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent on top of it, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And then he took the testimony and put it in the ark. That's the two slabs of stone in which the Lord had written with his own hand uh, the Ten Commandments. The ark is a big uh, acacia wood chest. It's not that big. Uh, containing these two um, tablets of stone. And put the mercy seat. That's a gold lid on top of that ark. Uh, which had the cherubims with their wings uh, toward each other. And upon which blood would be put once a year. He brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up a veil. It would be a, a, a curtain with a screen, and screened off the ark of the testimony, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he put the table in the, in the tent of meeting on the north side. That was the table of bread with 12 loaves being uh, recycled regularly, having fresh bread uh, on the one side. And then he put on the south side the lampstand with a seven-branch lampstand with the little uh, lamps of oil burning, uh, bringing light to the place and making a statement about God we'll talk about later. And he had the altar of incense in front of that curtain uh, where they burned incense representing the prayers uh, going up before God. And he put the altar out in the courtyard for the blood sacrifice and the laver for the priests to wash before they came into the Lord's presence. And then look what happened. Verse 34. And then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Glory of Lord in this case is his presence that you can see. It will be a, a light. It may be like a, a, a mist, a silvery mist. It may be a, a visible cloud or brilliance in the, in the room. Uh, but literally, the glory of the Lord can be seen. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. When priests would draw close to the thing, they would probably be slain. The, the slain in the spirit. I mean, they're, they're down. They can't, they can't get in there because of this intensity of the glory of God. And therefore, throughout all of their journeys, where whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day it was taken, out, taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night, and in the sight of all the house of Israel. You've got in the middle of a camp of two million people. You can imagine how many tents that is. This is a, an enormous tent city. And in the middle of that is the king's tent. 
Yahweh of hosts has come to dwell among his people. And he moved himself right into the middle of the camp. And then there's actually a specified array of where the different tribes would be. To the north, there would be a certain group of tribes. To the east, there would be a certain group of tribes. To the south, a certain group number of tribes. To the west, a certain number of tribes. And actually, if you look at the numbers, it formed a cross. The, 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 the south end being the largest, you know, and, and the, it's remarkable. You count out the numbers, and you, if anyone stood on a mountaintop, looked into the valley, and saw this great nation gathered there, they would have been arrayed like a cross with this tabernacle in the middle, and then this cloud by day coming up from it, and at night, this brilliant column of fire. God was among his people. You see that? God was moving into the middle of his people. It has always been about that. The devil hates God. He doesn't hate you. You're a chunk of meat to him. But he hates God. And God loves you. Un un unexplainably, he loves us. Remarkably, he loves us. Not simply generically, he loves masses of people and sort of is this benevolent dictator who will f smile. He actually wants to know you and be with you. I don't understand it, uh, why he would feel that way toward us, but he does. God is a, a, has love beyond our human comprehension. And so it, ever since in the Garden of Eden, you recall, he would walk with Adam and Eve in the, in the cool of the afternoon and they would converse together. It was fellowship. It was a friendship. It was not simply uh, some big, powerful God like the Wizard of Oz and, and little people running around doing his bidding. It's never been like that. That's, that's human thinking. That's the way we would invent a God. The real God isn't like what we would invent. The real God is loving and humble <laughs> and gracious with us to walk with us and know us. And so it was always been about that. And yet when the enemy came in and tempted us, the great main point in his heart was to pull us away from the God who loved us. Actually, it hurts, it breaks God's heart to not be with us. Now, I don't mean to say he's not secure in himself or he's, I don't want to paint a picture where God's up there wringing his hands and sort of, sort of a, a, you know, a nervous twit because uh, he doesn't have us. He's not like that. He's, he's at peace in himself. And yet he's, perfect love. He is perfect love. Great, huge, loving heart who really enjoys us and made us for himself. And so the devil's purpose is in tempting you to pull you away from the God who loves you so that he is without you in eternity. He wants to hurt God. See, he's going to hell and he knows it. Taking you with him really makes no difference except that he can hurt the God he hates. Now figure that out. That's a nice guy, huh? And I came up with a word and said, he's a dork. And, and I guess that would be, as, uh, it wasn't the only word I thought of, but that was the one I chose to use. So here we have this process as we go through history of watching God come closer back toward his people, of coming back into relationship with us. Now, there's another step to this. Let me take you there. John chapter 1. So first of all, he moves his tent right into the middle of his people. He becomes the king 
who camps among his people. Now I want to take you to John chapter 1. And this chapter, in my opinion, is one of the most powerful chapters in the Bible by far. It is, it is also the one the devil hates the most. And every cult that you can name attacks these first 18 verses with a vengeance. Uh, some cults have literally written whole new Bibles just to undo these 18 verses. That's their main point. That's why they have their own translation. And so this ought to be a great passage. <laughs> and indeed it is. You know, you know verse 1 by heart probably. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Of course, it's speaking of Jesus Christ. The Son of God has, is called the Word here, the Logos, because it is through him that God has always spoken to this planet. He is the one who walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the afternoon. He is the one Abraham and Sarah served dinner to in their tent. He is the one who has been appearing and, uh, uh, to Moses and let him see his, the backside. It was he who they saw on the top of Mount Sinai as, they, as the elders of Israel ate and drank a covenant meal. He has been the one who has spoken to this planet all along. John will say, no man has seen God at any time. But the Logos, the Word of God, the Son of God, he has been the one who has communicated with us all along. Now, verse 14, and the Word, Jesus Christ, became flesh. And now mine says dwelt among us, and it just, you go on by that like, yeah, so what? But I was stunned to find the Greek. And I'm not making this up, and I'm not interpreting anything. It's simply the way it is. It literally says, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Isn't that amazing? It, he tabernacled among us. He camped in a tent among us. And we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, God came, first of all, and tabernacled in a tent among the nation of Israel... And then John tells us that when the Son of God became a man, it was as though he put on the tent of human flesh and he's tabernacled among us as a people now. Christ being the tabernacle that, that, that the Son of God would dwell among us. But that's not the end of this theme. Go with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. God now dwells within the hearts of his people. In John 14, 17, Jesus says, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he says, you know him because he abides with you, but he says he will be in you. He, Jesus prophesies that at, at the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God would be given out at a new level and that he would dwell in the people of God. We now become the tabernacles. We are now the tents in which the Spirit of God dwells. Look at uh, 1, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Paul just says it about as clearly as he could say it. He says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God, or a tabernacle of God, and the Spirit of God dwells where? In you. Now turn to chapter 6 of that 1 Corinthians, verse 19. He just says it again in such terms that it is, it is virtually unavoidable, the meaning. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, 
and that you are not your own. So, as you receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, when you are born again, the very new birth that it speaks of is that the Spirit of God comes in and joins himself to your spirit. And your spirit's you, the essential you. I'm talking to you, your spirit, right now. Your spirit isn't a vague force that you have in your back pocket. It's not a little moon shadow that follows you around. You are spirit. The reason you have an intellect and a will and emotions is because God made you in his image. His image is the fact that you are spirit. You understand? So you are now joined to the Holy Spirit of God who dwells literally inside your body. I mean, it's, it's, we're not talking figuratively. He's dwelling in you. You now become a tabernacle of the Spirit of God. The Shekinah glory dwelt in the Holy of Holies. The Shekinah glory now dwells where? Yes. Amen. Acts chapter 2, verse 3. On the day of Pentecost, 120 were in the upper room. They were praying and worshiping in one accord. And suddenly there came the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And then this happened. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. Now, think with me for a minute. Over 120, every single one of them had over their head a little column of fire. Hmm. Where have you seen that before? Over the tabernacle, there was a column of fire, a great column of fire, for over the that's where God dwelt. Over that tabernacle was this great column of fire. Now, boy, is God making a statement. Over each head now appeared a column of fire. For now the Spirit of God was tabernacling among men within them. We now are the tabernacles of God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. But the, actually, this theme doesn't stop here. It goes on further. Go with me to Revelation chapter 21. The day will come when not only does God tabernacle in us, but hang on, we will tabernacle in God. If you recall, in, uh, you don't need to turn there, but in John 17, it's verse 21, Jesus says, Father, I pray that as you and I are one, they will be one. I and you, you and me, and them in us. Huh. And you say, what, what is he talking about? He's talking about this. Not only will God dwell within you and me, and us, but we will, they will come when we will dwell in God in the same way, he being our tabernacle, as it were. Chapter 21 of Revelation, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Sorry for those of you that like to surf. You can come and join us skiing on the mountain of the Lord. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. 
and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, and the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Now let your eye go down to verse 22. John sees this great city come down and, and, and settle on a real renewed planet Earth. This is not some vague shadowy place. This is now uh, the, the, new, the new age. And he says that as he sees this city, he said, I saw no temple in it. Huh. No tabernacle. I didn't see one. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its tabernacle. It's temple. And the city has no need of a sun or a moon, for the glory of the Lord has illumined it. Literally, the prophets say that the day will come when the glory of the Lord will cover the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. And you and I will live in the presence of God like fish swimming in water. Right now, if that were to take place, it would kill us. We could not bear it, for flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. First, this old seed has to die, but out of, the, out of it will come a brand new body that is capable of living in the un, unmitigated, unrestricted limit, presence of God. The power of God so much so that it would destroy us now. He dwells in us. The day will come when we will dwell in him as well. Father, I pray that they will be one, I and you, you and me, and them and us. And indeed, he will have his prayer. It will be fulfilled. We are tabernacles and he is ours. Now, how does this truth change our lives? What difference does this make to us? Well, if you recall I, my, my introduction, I'll just rehearse some of that again. Rather than slowing down, the demands seem to be increasing. At times I look ahead at all I have to do and fear rises up, telling me there is no way I'll have the strength to do what's being asked of me. But more and more I also hear the Holy Spirit, just as the panic starts to accelerate, telling me don't look at all that's ahead, take matters one at a time. Turn to me for help before you start each one. I really had a, a, a test of this on Easter. This last Easter was, was quite the challenge for me. I, my, my wife had broken her ankle, and, and uh, don't, don't get me wrong, I enjoy and I'm grateful for the chance to serve her, but I'm having to pick up a lot of her, her duties, and they were many. <laughs> and uh, so I'm doing that, and I'm doing these things, and so there's, there's all of that going that's just changed my world. And my mother had... Uh, just, I think it was about 11 days before that, if I count, had had a heart attack and was in hospitals and then being moved to a care center and, and all of this. And I never know, you know, and every time the phone rings, they could tell me she's dead. And, and so I've got, I've got that. I had contracted a, a, a low-grade bronchial infection. I, it wasn't, it just sort of hung on and I couldn't get rid of it and I didn't feel well. And then as I went I looked at the weekend of Easter, 
I had a class on Saturday morning that I had to teach, and then I had the two services Saturday night, and then I had two services Sunday morning, and then I, I recall it was a birthday party or something I had to go to that afternoon. And this, I felt exhausted, and this wave of, of discouragement came over me, and I thought, I can't do this. And I had determined, I really felt that I was to preach on Easter. And I had every excuse not to, but I wanted to go right in the devil's face and announce the resurrection. I mean, it was important to me. I, I really felt, I am not going to buckle under this thing. I'm going to declare the resurrection, and I'm going to spit in the devil's eye. And indeed, I did. Um, and, and, but yet, this weariness came over me, and, I be, and, and if you're, my tendency, at least, is to look right on down the road at all of it at once. And when I looked at it, it was a mountain. And I thought, I can't do it. I'm not going to make it. I'm going to break down somewhere. And then the Holy Spirit said to me, don't look at it all. Next step is all you look at. Seek me. In other words, really press in. Uh, I, I, that'd be my term. You know, press into me, draw close to me, and I will give you the strength for the next step. That's all you have to worry about. Just the next step. And I'll take you each step. And so I did that. For whatever, for everything that was there, I just thank you for the next step. Even the sermon came hard that way. I mean, it was not an easy sermon. I trust you for this. I trust you for this. I trust. And I'm, and I'm, I'm praying, for me, I'm praying in tongues. I'm, 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 I'm having prayer and pressing in. I'll, I'll describe this more later. And remarkably, I would make it through this step, and then I would make it through the next one. I mean, even, even as the services went along, it's not like, well, I, after the first couple, I figure, I got this now. I got it handled. Uh, I mean, I'm on my knees. I'm going, oh, Jesus, help me. I'm just trusting you now. Drawing in for every service, not taking anything for granted, needing his grace, service by service. And there it was. There it was. I'm having the opportunity right now because of some, some things I'm serving on to be pretty I mean, around a little bit with, with Pastor Jack Hayford. He's 70 years old. Now, and I'm watching this guy, and he is, he is, his energy is amazing. And I, I think when I see people with a lot of energy like this, sometimes you think, well, they're just nervous twits. That's their, <laughs> their problem is they, they're guilt-driven, or they, have, they don't know how to say no, they don't have good boundaries. You know, we, we can go through all through these kinds of discussions, and... And yet when you're around him, that's, he, he's not a nervous twit and he's not some guilt-driven guy. Uh, it's not that at all. He really seems happy. And I mean, I, I, sort of, I just sort of stand and watch this and, and I, I mean, it's the appearances. He wakes up in the morning and says, hallelujah, it's another day and, and, and seems to be enjoying what he's doing to the point they can't slow him down. He had just a little surgery and he just preached two services at Easter. You know, out of 10, they had at church on the way. And, uh, but they just, you can't slow the guy down. Why? Well, there's this, there's this joy in the heart. There's, a, there's an attitude toward life. Rather than a moaning and a groaning, there seems to be a joyful acceptance of the call that God has on his life, and he seems to be doing it with that energy. 
The other night, um, at our prayer meeting on Thursday night, one of the brothers gave me a prophetic word. And uh, we were praying for each other in some circles, I think. And, and, and he said, I, I, the Lord shows me you as an 18-year-old. And the Lord says, now, don't think of yourself as an old man. He says, I want you to think of yourself as an 18-year-old. And he said, I see you running, you know, with sweat pouring off of you. And, and he says, like, you grab a Gatorade, you know, and, the, and, and, and chugging that. And, and he says, but you, you're to run like an 18-year-old. Well, you know, I've been mulling this thing over. And, <laughs> and I think the Lord has said to me, Stephen, it's taken me this long to make you useful. For heaven's sakes, don't waste it now by shutting down. <laughs> and there really is that sense. I've gone, Lord, is that, is, that just a, is that an interesting thought or was that you? And the Lord's saying, no, I've made you, I've formed you, I've designed you. Run. Run with perseverance, the race set before you. Run like a young man. Amen. I've ordered your days. Don't think old. It isn't for you to decide what, what, when you're shut down. And if you'll depend on me in my spirit, I will strengthen you. Remember the example of Caleb? Wonderful Caleb in the Old Testament? He and Joshua were the two spies that said, no, we can take this land. Well, all of their other generation died. Every one of them buried all their friends. I mean, everybody is in the sand. Except when we finally came in and conquered the land, there's Caleb and Joshua. And J Caleb, when it comes time to divvy up the land, because he had stood in faith, he was given a choice of land just like he was a tribe. And so Caleb came and said, um, he, he came before Joshua, he says, Moses, the man of God, has promised me. And he said, today, he said, I go out to war like a young man. Now he's 80. He says, I go out to war like a young man. Everybody else is dead. But walking in faith doesn't kill you. It actually keeps you young. Walking in faith with God actually keeps you young. And then he said, here's what I want. I want the land, the hill country of the Anakim. Now the Anakim, let me tell you what that means, the giants. I want the toughest bunch of mean dudes and me and my sons, we're going to go kill him. And he takes his sword and went down and did exactly that. Some of the tribes didn't have the chutzpah to clear their land of, of enemies at all. They just lived little pockets, you know. Not Caleb. He and his boys cleared out the whole place. It's theirs. Just like a young man. Caleb, staying young in the spirit, staying a man or woman of faith, you may feel like, man, God is asking so much of me, and yet you'll find as you move in faith, it actually keeps you young. Why? For you're drawing on a source of power that isn't physical. It's not adrenaline. You're drawing on something. Remember when Jesus was feeding, I mean, it had, had the, there was multitudes coming out from the town of Samaria, 
He had spoken at the well to a woman and told her about her marriage history. And she'd gone in and say, said to the town, come and hear the man who's told me all about myself. And multitudes were pouring out the gates. And the disciples were saying, Lord, you need lunch. They were worried about him. He hadn't eaten. And he said to them, he said, I have food you don't know about. In other words, I'm drawing on the power of the Spirit right now. I'm doing what I'm called to do. I'm anointed of the Spirit. I'm not hungry. I will be fine. I'm drawing on another source. What he was drawing on was the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. We, he tabernacles within us. When we learn to turn to the reality of what this is, this isn't just theology. He dwells in you. And when you and I learn to draw on that, we are transformed in our capacity. Now, quickly, I will give you some practical steps to do that, to draw on that. As Christians, we are now living in a season of history in which we have we've become tabernacles of God's presence, but his empowering is not automatic. Did you hear that? The empowering, the accessing of the presence of God within us is not automatic. We must choose to let his spirit transform us time after time. And here are four keys to this process. I just give you scriptures and a simple statement. Number one, Psalm 37, 23 says, The steps of a righteous man are ordered of the Lord. Therefore, do what you do because you believe God is asking you to do it. There is a difference between a nervous twit, a guilt-driven person who's, who, who seems to tr be earn, trying to earn their value and prove something to their parents or whatever kind of psychological baggage we've got. That's one thing. That person does need to cut it out. But when you believe that God has told you, you see, as I assess the Easter weekend, I believe the Lord wanted me to do it. I looked at myself and said, you've got to be kidding I'm a, I'm a sack of slush. God says, you preach the resurrection this weekend. You can do this. Well, do what you do because you believe the steps, your steps as a righteous man or woman are ordered of the Lord. And if he's asked you to do it, you can do it. But it will be step at a time and it will be heavily dependent on the power of God. Number two, lean not on your own understanding. That's Proverbs 3, 5. Simply, humbly acknowledge you need him at every step. Don't become presumptuous. Well, if God's told me to do it, it'll all be there. Now, don't get presumptuous and silly. Step at a time, draw on him. I mean, this, this power we're talking about is a very real stuff. And you either got it or you don't. And hit your knees until you got it. You know when you're empowered. You can feel it come over you. I'd, I'd call on people and say, pray for me. Put your hands on me. Lay on hand. And, and, and you, I could... I can sense the thing come into me. Do you see? I mean, it's already there. I guess I'm giving myself to it. I don't know how you want to phrase this, but I can feel the power. I can feel the strength. Thirdly, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Confess God's indwelling presence, not your weakness. Confess the power of God that dwells within you. Get your mind on what God can do, not what you can do. And finally, the spirit is willing, says Jesus, but the flesh is weak. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he took three of his disciples, Peter and James and John. He was about to be arrested. They were going to go through a, an absolute onslaught of hell. And Jesus, would you notice, prepared himself in prayer. 
He strengthened himself in prayer because he was not operating as the second person of the Trinity. He was operating as a human being anointed of the Spirit and he needed the power of God so he would not fail. And he said to Peter and James and John, you come and pray too. What did they do? They went to sleep. I'm so tired. We have a big trial ahead of us. I need my sleep. Uh And the Lord knew better. And so he said to them, you know, he came back and found them sleeping. He said, couldn't you pray with me one hour? And then he said this. He said, pray that you not be, you not fall into temptation. The spirit, read that out loud. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And indeed, the flesh was weak, and Peter and James and John all betrayed him and failed, for their spirit was willing. They did love the Lord, but their flesh was weak because it was not drawing on the power of God. It was standing against the devil in its own strength, which will fail. Deliberately spend time enough in prayer to receive the strength you need. And that doesn't mean spend hours talking at God for his sake. Please don't do that. I mean, really, that is extremely tedious, or praying long little lists or whatever, you know. There is time for list praying, and I, I mean that, and I do that. But it's a, that's, a, that's a form of task that you do, a labor of love. But strengthening yourself is being with him. And sometimes you don't say a word, but you sit in his presence and just aware of him. You talk to him. You may pray in the spirit. You may read something. You, but you, your whole point is simply to be engaged with the presence of God. Just draw near him and let him strengthen you. However long that takes, you literally learn to do this. Jesus did it. If Jesus needed to do it, I guarantee you, you need to do it. You understand? Anybody that thinks they can get away without it is just kidding themselves and you will fall and make a mess of things just like Peter did. This is, there's no options here. Either you do it or you don't do it. Either we learn to draw on Christ in me, the hope of glory, or I draw on my flesh. There aren't options. It's A or B. How many today, you're facing a mountain, you're facing challenges, you're facing things that look to you and you feel absolutely, I don't have the strength to do this. I don't think I can make it through what's ahead of me. How many would say that's me? I'd like those of you in that position, just stand to your feet. We're going to pray over you. are not going to do anything strange. Just pray over you. You say, I'm one of those right now who needs to say, Christ in me, the hope of glory. I am committing myself that one step at a time, one situation at a time, I will turn to him over and over again. I'm not going to look down the road at it all and let myself become overwhelmed. But I will take each step, trusting him for wisdom, trusting him for strength, trusting him for the love and patience and and, and, and emotional grace I need, trusting him for everything that by his power I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm going to believe it and I'm going to confess right now that by the end of this thing I will come out an overcomer. I will come out victorious where there is no natural explanation but I can do it in the power of God. Now as you're standing to your feet are you ready to make that confession? Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Those of you standing right now. Heavenly Father. Father. I am weak. weak. 
The spirit is willing. But my flesh is weak. When my flesh looks at what's ahead, it grows tired and afraid and self-pitying. I turn away this moment from dependency on the flesh. And I confess joyfully, boldly, that Christ is in me, dwelling in me, the hope of glory. Dwelling within me is all the power, all the wisdom, all the strength I could ever use. And I determine to draw on him from this moment forward. Spirit of God, remind me over and over again to draw close to you. By faith, I declare, I will overcome. Step by step, day by day, situation by situation, you will give me all I need. And I will be victorious. For you tabernacle within me. And you've ordered my days. And ordered my steps. I believe it. In Jesus' name I pray. Now just, Father, I, we pray for these beloved that are standing. We stand in agreement with their confession. We thank you that greater is he that's in them than he that's in the world. That through Christ they can do all things. That in their weakness they can actually celebrate that the strength of God might come forth. For in their, their weakness, your strength is perfected and brought forward and completed. We confess our weakness, but we say in Christ we are strong and there is nothing we cannot do. We can do all things asked of us, all things you've ordered in our days, all things that you have planned for our lives can be done. We are 18 years old with the wind in our hair. We are running like young men and women. We are Caleb when we are in the spirit. And that's where we're going to live. We declare it and we thank you for the reality. This isn't, this isn't positive talk today. It works. And we bless you for tabernacling among us. In Jesus' powerful name we pray. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.